You've just sung a hymn that is only 20 years old. It was brand new when this hymnal was compiled. I was thinking of the one line in it, verse 4, that particularly pertains to the sermon today. Doubt may lift its head to murmur, scoffers mock, sinners jeer, but the truth proclaims a wonder thoughtful hearts receive with cheer. That leads us right into what we're going to think about this morning. And by the way, I'll mention we're also going to sing a a new hymn from the Modern Reformation book as we close. So reach for that one as the service closes this morning. But let's turn our attention to the Gospel of Matthew as we've been studying it. We're coming back now after the Easter season to the place in Matthew where we've been moving through this great gospel. We're not considering every sentence or paragraph necessarily, but trying to see at least the major themes and episodes that occur as Jesus' ministry builds in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 11, I read for you this morning the first 19 verses and ask you to please follow. Here is the Word of God. After Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to others, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. And this is God's holy word. Once long ago, a man said, Lord, I believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. 
that unnamed individual who's mentioned in the ninth chapter of Mark certainly spoke the anxiety and the situation of many Christians in every age. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You may be a person who identifies with that because you have discovered in Christ a marvelous Savior as the Scripture reveals Him, someone better as a Lord of your life than you ever dreamed to hope for. And yet you find that there are nagging doubts that rise in your mind sometimes. Can I really trust the gospel? Am I really a Christian? Could God really love somebody with all my stains and imperfections? Why does tragedy come and break into the midst of the plan of a loving God? If anybody was only occupied with their doubts or followed their doubts to the fullest ultimate conclusions, life could really be made unbearable. There's a little story that goes around. It supposedly originated in a philosophy class at New York University. Students, of course, in philosophy are taught to ask great questions of meaning and existence and so on, and the professor had been lecturing, and a student raised his hand and said, Professor, how can I know that I exist? Now, there's a doubt for you. How can I know that I exist? Well, the professor peered down at the student over his spectacles and said, Whom shall I say is asking the question? You see, if all you have are doubts, even your own existence could become meaningless. There is doubt, which in an extreme form can become determined skepticism or agnostic rebellion against the things of God, but not all doubt is that. In fact, I would guess probably much more often Among people of faith, there is doubt that is not unbelief, it is not heresy, but it is really more part of the frailty of every believer's human condition. It comes from the fact that even we who are justified by grace through faith in Christ are not completely sanctified. Our salvation is still working itself out in us. And many things that would be weeds in the garden of the Christian life are yet being pulled up and and uprooted. We're also reminded that we have a, an imperfect perspective at any given hour to see and understand reality. The, the Scripture says we see things through a glass darkly. Only partially do we really understand our environment. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis once wrote about his own personal doubt. He was a Christian when he wrote this, a well-founded Christian, but he wrote a letter to a friend named Arthur Greaves. And in the letter, Lewis spoke about this inner battle that goes on. Let me quote a few sentences that he wrote to his friend. He said, I have no rational ground now, Arthur, for turning back upon the arguments that convinced me of God's existence or his goodness. And yet the irrational dead weight of skeptical habits from my past, the spirit of the age, the cares of every day, These things tend to steal away my lively feelings about eternal truth. Often when I pray, I almost feel as if I were posting letters to a non-existent address. Mind you, I don't say that I think this is true, 
the whole of my reasonable mind is convinced otherwise. But sometimes I feel that it may be so. A Christian who doubts. What do we do about such a person? What if you are such a person? It's hard for me to imagine that you are not such a person at some times in your life. Today we have a great Christian before us, John the Baptist, who openly expressed a significant doubt about Jesus. Now, you need to stop and think about who this is. There have been times in the past when I've said if you could somehow identify chronologically who was the world's first Christian, I would say that might have to be the Virgin Mary, the first one who had God's announcement and revelation. You are going to bear this son who is the God-man. And Mary's faith leaped at that. She wondered about it. She didn't fully comprehend it, but she was the first believer in Jesus incarnate. Who was the second? Well, maybe you could have an interesting argument here, but I would remind you of Mary's cousin Elizabeth who was pregnant with John. And do you remember that scene in the gospel when, when Elizabeth came into Mary's presence and the baby for the first time quickened or leaped in her womb? And the reading of the Scripture, the interpretation of that was, here was the unborn John, God's prophet, recognizing the one he had come to announce. Could we call John the Baptist the world's second Christian? Well, I don't really care whether he wins that contest or not. He certainly was a great believer and a man much used of God. This was the man, remember, living out there in the desert with those rough clothes and that strange diet, and, and people came out streaming out to see him. Even the governmental leaders who opposed him came out to say, we've got to hear this guy. He's the, he's the phenomenon of the hour as he preaches repentance. And there he was, out there in the desert, and of course he was the one who baptized Jesus, the one who recognized his cousin coming toward him that day, whether he knew this in advance or not, that day he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's voice spoke through him as he identified Jesus as the Messiah. Of all the sources you would think you would hear, a main question of doubt coming from, would you have expected it to come from John the Baptist? I don't think so. And yet here you see the sign of the reality of God's Word as he shows us people coming to faith and struggling with what they don't understand, warts and all. It's vital for us to see that it was a complex process of of struggling to come toward faith, even for these early believers and disciples. We tend to make them superheroes. We think, you know, they just got within the range of Jesus' voice and wham, they were swept right into the kingdom of God with, with everything taken care of. But quite the opposite is the case. As they wrestled with how to take all this in and how to deal with it in their human nature, I would hope you could be greatly encouraged today as you try to understand with me the doubt of a great Christian. First of all, I want to pose this question and try to answer why would a strong believer doubt Christ? Why would a strong believer like John the Baptist doubt Christ? I think there are two distinct answers given to this in our text. Matthew 11.3 has the crux of the matter, the question that he asked. It's an amazing question. He sent it through his disciples. He couldn't come. He wasn't free to come himself. 
So he said, go and ask Jesus. Here's a very important question. We've got to get this settled. Ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we look for another? Now this is the one who said, behold the Lamb of God a year earlier. And now he's saying, are you really the one? What's going on? I think we're almost a little bit embarrassed for John. We think, my goodness, how, you know, how could you slip away from your strong statement of a year ago? And yet here he was, a human being, a believer in progress, who was dealing with the enormity of God's revelation in Jesus. Here's the first reason, clearly, in our text why a strong believer like this had a question, had a doubt. Because of the obvious disparity between what he thought God should be doing in Christ, his Messiah, and what the Messiah was actually doing. The ministry of Jesus has gone on for about a year now. John has faded into the background. We don't uh, hear it said here, but if you would just turn ahead in your Bible to chapter 14, a little later we're going to get the explanation of this being in prison. It's just mentioned in verse 2 here, but the explanation is given a little bit later on. John had moved off the stage. He wasn't free to move about anymore, and I'll talk about why he was in prison in a minute. But he's unable to immediately access what Jesus is doing and saying. He has to rely upon secondhand reports by these friends of his who are still kind of his disciples. They believe he was the big man as far as the movement of God was concerned. And he had come and predicted the Messiah is going to come and do this and do that, and and Jesus is the Messiah, well, was Jesus doing what John had said the Messiah should do is the question. Look back, if you will, to Matthew 3.12 and see what kinds of things John predicted the Messiah would do. It's all thunder and lightning, folks. John rightly saw and rightly understood from apocalyptic Scripture, judgment Scripture, he will baptize with fire. He will gather his wheat into God's barn and burn up the chaff, destroy the unbelievers with unquenchable fire. Judgment was the note that John correctly saw from Old Testament prophecy and announced would be the Messiah's action when he came. Now, this was biblical. John wasn't mistaken in what he read. And yet here was Jesus, and as far as John had heard anything, and as far as his friends had reported it, Jesus was going about in the provinces, the rural areas, staying away from the cities. You know, it would be like uh, he was somewhere in the Adirondack Mountains going about the towns and villages where you don't get much news from there, and staying away from New York City or Boston or Washington And yes, he was working miracles. Yes, he was teaching amazing things. The dead were even being raised. But John is thinking, where are the battles that are supposed to happen? Where is the axe that's supposed to be laid to the root of that rotten tree of the temple system that's so degrading the worship of Israel and and needs to be swept away? Where's the confrontation with the false powers of Caesar putting down God's people? This Jesus doesn't look like the Messiah. This gentle healer and teacher seems to be miscast in the part. And so he asks this bold question, are you really the one? 
Or are we supposed to look for somebody else because you don't fit the role? How many of us have doubts about something relating to Christ or the gospel because of expectations that might be biblical expectations, but they might be biblical expectations with a misplaced sense of timing and fulfillment about them because that's John's problem. He correctly saw that the Messiah would come to be judge, and indeed at the end of the age, all of that was predicted and all of that was going to happen. But what was John's problem? He was trying to foreshorten the the whole age of the Messiah's reign into a little compact ball and say, the minute this Messiah appears, judgment. He missed everything in between, and there was a lot in between. And isn't that what we sometimes do? We think we know how God is going to end up with us, the goal to which he's taking us and perfecting and and working things out in us. And we say, okay, I know what I'm supposed to look like and, and where God is going to take me and how he's going to mold me. So why am I not there yet? I love a little cartoon I have among memorabilia. I probably cut it out 25 years ago from a minister's journal. It has a a pastor at his pulpit, and he's kind of leaning on one elbow like this as he looks at the folks with a sardonic look, and he says, this is my 15th sermon on the transforming power of the gospel. Why do you all look like the same old bunch? (laughs) Don't we sometimes bring that against ourselves? Why, it's Easter. Christ is alive. His life is in me. His spirit is in me. I know that he wants to perfect certain wonderful things about me. But why haven't they happened? Where's all the change? And it leads to doubts. Someone said that walking by faith in Christ might be thought of as being like relying on the headlights of your car to illumine the stretch of road immediately in front of you, which your car in just a few seconds is going to drive upon. You certainly are glad you have those headlights on backcountry roads of Lancaster County. Who knows, if the the bridge was washed out in front of you, you certainly want your headlights to tell you in enough time so you can stop and not plunge into the Conestoga River or something like that. Well, what if, you know, when we think about headlights and how they work, They shine maybe, I don't know exactly, let's say 100 yards in front if they're on high beams. If you're on a straight road, you might get a 100 or a little more or less view of the road in front of you. And and you say, good, I can drive by faith over that next 100 yards. And and when I get to the end of where that beam is shining now, the 100 yards beyond that will be illumined. So my headlights let me drive by faith. But what if somebody said, wait a minute, now look, I've got 15 more miles to go until I get to Morgantown or York or wherever I'm going, and I want headlights from God that shine on the whole road between me and my destination. And if God doesn't show me the whole road for me to see right now, then I'm going to doubt him. I'm going to doubt to such an extent that I'm going to say, maybe that road isn't even there. I don't care if the atlas tells me it's there or that I've gone over that road before. Maybe it's not there anymore because I can't see it right now. Well, you say that's pretty ridiculous, but yet that's the kind of thing we can do when we start doubting. God allows us to see enough of where he's taking us to move immediately ahead. He doesn't reveal what's four miles down the road. 
you're going to have to walk by faith and take that to his timing to have that be revealed. But a first reason why a believer can doubt Christ is a disparity between what's happening now and what we think the Scriptures have prepared us to expect. Often, the problem is simply timing. Now, there's another reason why John the Baptist doubted Christ, and it also applies to us, and that had to do with the personal suffering that distorted his viewpoint. Where is John? He's in prison. And I can tell you with assurance, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know a lot about ancient prisons, but any prison cell in any jail or prison of the United States of America would be palatial in comfort compared to the kind of situation John was in. He was in the fortress of Machiris. We know that. It's a fortress, an old fortress that Herod built down near the Dead Sea in the baking desert. Probably he was in some kind of a hole in the ground with a grill work on top of it through which you could drop a slop bucket full of some kind of nearly inedible something to eat every day. I'm sure it smelled terrible in there, and he'd been there for a year. Cut off from friendship, cut off from worship, cut off from direct observation of Jesus. And why was he there? Well, again, if you want to get ahead of the story, go to Matthew 14. You probably know the story. Herod Antipas, who was in power at that time, had decided that the wife of his brother should be his wife. And I won't get into all the machinations of this, but he just moved in and made her his wife in an adulterous manner. Her name was Herodias. John stood up in the public place and said, this is wrong. This is an offense to God, a stench in God's nostrils. Well, guess what happens to people who say that about the man in power? Off to the dungeon you go. And so he'd been there now for a year, and it looked like that meteoric career of this bold prophet was ending in disaster Just because he had spoken for the truth as God called him to do, now he barely got a little glimpse maybe through some part of that grill work of the blue sky once in a while. But other than that, he was in a stinking hole. And worse, you can read the rest of the story in Matthew 14 because you probably know from your Sunday school days that because of Herodias, his head ended up on a platter not too long after this. When a believer in the sovereign God faces raw suffering, it is natural for questions to come about the plan of God, the purposes of God. Questions come, and they they even begin to take over. Now, what do we mean by suffering? I don't think any of you are in these dungeons right now, but are you under some real kind of major stress about your career, your studies in school? Is there some great emotional disappointment or or grief that has come into your life that just sits there in the front room of your mind and will not go away? Some tremendous sadness or confusion? It is not any wonder if there are questions of doubt about what God is doing in times like that. The Bible is so realistic about this, you know? Here was Elijah, the great prophet, who was... John's predecessor, you remember him, his great day of triumph over the priests of Baal. You would have thought, well, the guy was was riding on the top of a mountain in his nation and just 
Days later, he was out in the desert saying, Oh God, let me die. I am no better than my father's. Incredible. But Elijah was subject to real doubts and questions in the time of stress and opposition. David promised the throne of Israel as a young man, anointed by Samuel with the promise of God, you will be king. And then he was subject to a whole decade or more of his young manhood as Saul chased him up and down the wilderness like a fugitive, and David finally reached the point where he was ready to go over to the Philistines and and live with them. It was so disgusting, and he just had so many questions. This is never going to happen. I might as well quit on the whole idea that I'll ever be king. God shows us his people in all kinds of difficulty and questioning on the way to the things he destines them for. But there's a big commendation that we can give John the Baptist here or any believer in a time when doubt eclipses warm-hearted faith. And you can see it in exactly what John was doing in this passage. What was he doing? Was he sitting in his cell cursing God or shaking his fist? No. He sent his question directly to the source who could give him an answer. He didn't sit there and feel sorry for himself. He sent his question to the one who could reveal what was really going on. And I think this teaches us that doubt is an incentive to wrestle with our questions in prayer and compare our questions against Scripture and take our doubts to the Lord where these things can be in time dissolved and worked out so that they don't sour into agnosticism, but instead doubts can actually uncover weak points in our life where God can bring us his strength and his answers over time. I don't label John's doubt as unbelief. I think it is confused faith. And there's a big difference. John had not turned his back on the truth of God. In fact, John's problem was that he was a student of the Word of God, and he was saying, Jesus, I'm just not sure how you measure up to the Bible. Help me with this. I think he was in the situation that Jesus, you know, addressed disciples at different times and said, oh, you of little faith, where's your faith? He didn't say, why, you condemned rebel agnostics, how dare you doubt? No, he said, you've got faith, it's real, but you're not applying it. You're not seeing how it works in this situation. Take your doubts to the Lord in honesty, the way John did, and in time at least. The Scripture and the wisdom of God's people can show you how these things indeed do have answers. Well, that's how or why a great Christian can doubt. Now, quickly, in the second place, just hear some of Jesus' reassurance to this doubting soul. Look at how Christ reacted. Did he say, what? You people are reporting from John the Baptist and he has a question? Are you serious? John the Baptist couldn't have a question like this. That's not possible. He doesn't say any of that, does he? He simply receives this. He doesn't say, why would John doubt me? He treats the question with respect, with biblical answer, And then he goes on to commend the doubter who was asking the question. Notice, first of all, how Jesus responds there in in verse 5 to these questioners. 
I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying as he quotes there, really from Isaiah 35. And, and what he's saying is, let me see if I can paraphrase it. He, he's saying, John has formulated a question because he doesn't think I measure up to Scripture as he remembers it. Well, go back and remind him of this Scripture. Isaiah 35 is what's being quoted in verse 5 here, that the blind will receive sight, the lame will walk, those will have, and so on. Jesus is saying, look, go tell your master that this Scripture is being fulfilled in your sight. Measure my life against the Word of God and nothing else, and you'll see that I am indeed exactly the one you thought I was. In other words, you need a bigger picture. You've got a piece of Scripture. You need some other pieces gathered in to build a whole view of things. And then as these men were apparently going back, and it's interesting that he spoke the praise of John. It says in verse 7, as they were leaving, he began to speak about John. I don't know whether they heard what he said and took it back or not. But then he started to praise John. He praised the doubter. And he said, folks, of all the sons of women on this planet, there has never been a greater human being than John. Why would he say that? Well, we think he said that because John occupied that privileged position. Malachi 3.1 had predicted that before the Messiah came, there would be one going before him as his messenger, as his trumpet blower, in a sense. And Jesus is saying, that one, if you can accept this, was Elijah. You know, it's interesting. There's another place in the Scripture where they asked John, are you Elijah? And he said, no. I, I used to not understand that. I used to think, well, if he was filling the place of Elijah, why did he say no? But you know what I think the answer to that is? I think that great people can be used by God in great purposes and not really comprehend themselves what their role is. Others see it better than they do. And Jesus was saying, don't think badly of this man. He has spoken and he has occupied a position as the last of the Old Testament prophets to make me known. And he's great. But then he says something even more amazing. But do you also realize that the least of you believers in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John? What does that strange thing mean? Well, we think of greatness in terms of accomplishment or position or title or or notice in the Hall of Fame, don't we? But Jesus is saying there's a different kind of greatness. It's a greatness of privilege. And your privilege, you folks right here, you believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you students from 10th Presbyterian Church who love Christ as your Savior, you have a greater privilege than John the Baptist. Why? Because you stand on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and you understand the whole picture. You understand this beautiful thing that God is doing in the gospel, this mighty, powerful work of his, and you hold a privilege even greater than Isaiah or Elijah or the greatest prophets of the past age. Now, my time is short, but let me slip in the third point here that might not seem relevant, but I want to show you in just a couple minutes why it is. In the third place today, I want you to see verses 16 to 19. I think it does fit, and it does complement what we've just learned about a great 
Christian who had doubts. Because we see in these verses what I'm calling the impossible demands of fickle unbelief. What we have here is a contrast. John's kind of doubting was a permissible doubting, an expected doubting, a doubting that we will all have, questions we will have because we don't completely understand the Scripture, because we suffer, because we're, we're out of whack or out of perspective at some point. But here's a kind of doubting that Jesus does not forgive. And here he tells in a little mini parable about children playing in the street. You know how children are. They, they imitate what adults do. And the picture here, if you don't understand it, is here's a few children over here saying, let's play wedding. Okay, you're the bride, you're the groom, and you all sing hallelujahs and be happy. And some of the children sit by and say, we're not playing wedding. We're not interested in that game. So they say, okay, let's play funeral since you're in a bad mood. You all sing a dirge and you carry the body in. We're not doing that. We don't want to play that game. And Jesus is saying this kind of silly childish behavior that doesn't even know how to cooperate in a game is exactly how this whole generation has been towards Jesus and John the Baptist. Here comes John, an ascetic man of spare diet, of of rigid principles, and they say, oh, he's got a demon. Okay, here comes Jesus. He goes to wedding feasts. He drinks wine and enjoys himself and laughs, and they say, he's a drunkard. And what's Jesus saying here? He's saying the unbelief of that generation and this generation today is childish. It's foolish. It's got its mind made up. It knows what it wants, and it's not going to listen no matter what God presents to it. But the bottom line of our text today is a verse I haven't even mentioned yet, verse 6. Blessed is the one who does not fall away because of me. John, blessed are you to express your doubts as long as I don't scandalize you and and cause you to fall away from God. Let me put it this way. There is doubt that is childlike. To be childlike is to make a mistake innocently or not to know something in, in a naive way just because you haven't learned it. But you're eager to learn and you're willing to be corrected. And being childlike, in fact, is commended for every believer in the Scripture, isn't it? Be like these little children. That's what Jesus meant. Be childlike. Be, be ready to learn. Be an open vessel. Ask all your questions and listen as God answers. That kind of doubt is accepted by our God and is not offensive. But childish doubt is quite another thing. It has its mind made up, it is intransigent, it is incorrigible, and it won't learn, and it's not the least bit interested in learning. Don't be like that, or you will find that when the judge comes, and he will come, that judge that John had prophesied, your unbelief will trap you in eternal death. Blessed is the person who does not find in Jesus Christ a cause for offense. A cause to ask honest questions? Yes, indeed. Ask them in prayer. Ask them of the Word of God. Ask them from your Christian friends. And God will reward your quest. But childish doubt is condemnable in God's sight. Do not play children's games with the truth of God. Blessed 
is the person who does not find in Jesus Christ a cause of offense. And our Father, we ask that you would hear our questions, hear our moments of confusion when our perspective is a little out of whack because of something going on in our life. Father, teach us the things we need to know as you patiently taught your servant John and all those disciples with the often foolish-sounding things they asked. But Lord, take from us that rigid mindset that says, my mind is made up and I'm not interested in learning from God. Take that childishness away that we might learn and glorify you in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus himself. Amen.